Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. As you stand for the reading of God's word, it begins this way. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. When I think about the message change that the Holy Spirit called for this afternoon. I think about David in the presence of Saul before he went out to kill Goliath. That when Saul armed him and gave him that armor, David said, I have not tried these things. And he took them off and he took his sling and five stones and went out to meet Goliath. And I felt that way about the message that was going to come out of 1 Corinthians. It just wasn't really prepared in my heart. Though the study had been there, the time of prayer had been there. And I felt that the Lord would have me preach this tonight. Heavenly Father, bless now the preaching of this thy word. I believe with all of my heart and soul the Holy Spirit of God has called for this. And tonight, Lord, I pray that you would preach the message. Oh, Lord, hide me behind the cross of Calvary. I don't want to be seen. I pray that our Lord Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up. Grant to us tonight what you granted this first century church. Lord, I'm in desperate need of it. Ministry in Sri Lanka is. I've heard your pastor here state that great need here. I heard your messenger to Korea state it. I've heard my other brothers state it. And tonight, grant it to us, Lord, a beginning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I want to begin tonight with a quote from my favorite missiologist. His name is James Hudson Taylor. I don't know what I'd have done without his biographies and without his writings. I believe at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I pray that the Lord will put me in a seat beside him. I want to thank him for his life and ministry. He said these words many years ago. He said, unless there's an element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. That means that there is no need for faith in giving and there is no need for faith in going. I like that statement, the element of extreme risk. There's five characteristics of the early church that we need tonight. And though this is not one of them, the early church took extreme risks. 
They did great exploits for God. That's what I pray tonight, that you and I will be used of God before the trumpet sounds, and that could happen at any moment. We'll be caught up together in the clouds of the air. And at that time, just to remove anything that you might believe falsely about that, we won't be floating on clouds playing harps. We're going to be taken up into heaven and we're all going to be presented at the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give an account of that which we have done, whether it was good or whether it was bad. God's going to reward us whether or not we produce gold, silver, or precious stones, or whether our works were wood, hay, or stubble. I want to tell you when the rapture of Jesus Christ comes, it's going to be a glorious day. But I believe for many Christians, I believe for the 21st century churches all across the world that many of them are going to stand there and their head is going to hang because life was all about themselves. They served themselves. They took care of themselves. They watched over their own house. They watched over only those things that pertain to them. We live in a society of what I call a disease called meitis. I have never looked it up in a dictionary yet, but I'm sure it's there. I believe it's in God's dictionary where people are just concerned about me and me and me. We live in that time. And at the judgment seat of Christ, every blood-bought believer will be there. Thank the Lord, sin will not be the subject there because sin was taken care of on Calvary. When we were born again, he washed us by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that won't be an issue. Our salvation will not be an issue. Our freewheeling brother don't understand this. But I want to tell you, you're only going to be at the judgment seat of Christ because you've been born again. Though those won't be the two issues at the judgment seat of Christ. But let me tell you an issue that will be there. Your faith promise giving will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Your participation at your local New Testament church called Heritage Baptist Church will be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. Those issues will be there. Your prayer life will be an issue. What you are doing and thinking in your thought life, what you're doing in your private life, what you surf on the internet, all these things that are affecting you and your walk with the Lord, it will all be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. I believe this first century church lived in light of that. I believe that they did and they took extreme risk and they did great exploits for God because they understood one thing, Jesus was coming. At any moment they would be ushered into his presence and they would stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who paid their ransom, who forgave them of their sin and they were going to give an account of all that they had done or had not done for the Savior. The day of Pentecost, no doubt, was an amazing day. On that day, the Holy Spirit moved and the Lord's church was empowered. It didn't begin on the day of Pentecost. It was empowered on the day of Pentecost. That church existence that day was a sight to behold. Oh, wouldn't you love to have been there? Can you imagine when you read the scripture, they that gladly received his word in the same day, there were added unto them three souls, 30 souls, 300 souls, my goodness, 3,000 souls. It's even hard to think that way. 
What a church this was. When I think about this church, it was a church operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a church on a mission to take the gospel to their lost world. It was a church excited. Did you hear that? They were excited about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a church committed to holiness, obedient to the word of God and to worship. It was a church that was hated by the world around them, but it was steadfast in the face of their horrible persecution that they faced. It was a church that was growing, a church that God added to daily. It was a church that enjoyed the manifest presence and power of God. This church described in Acts was unlike anything that the world has ever seen. Oh, I want it to happen again. I was thinking this afternoon, meditating over the message when I sensed the Lord changing it. I flipped over to Acts chapter 2. If the Lord wanted these five characteristics brought out tonight, maybe not for you. Maybe for a missionary who came off the field to come here to be refreshed by your hospitality, by your love by your prayers. You see, many of you that were here in 2015 and you're still faithful, serving the Lord. I want to tell you that blesses a missionary's heart when we travel and visit churches, when we see people who are holding faithful to the Lord. I can't tell you how much that encourages us. It's a blessing beyond description. When I see the five characteristics of this early church, in verse 44, it says that they were together in all things. So the first characteristic of this church was this church in Acts was a united church. They were united in this sense. The people loved one another. The terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka destroyed the love of Sri Lankan people for other Sri Lankan people. For you see, the terrorists were Sri Lankan. And though they were divided by religion, the majority being Buddhist and then Hindu and then Muslim and then Catholic and other nominal religions, it has divided a people. We were asked, and in some cases we were told not to ever go to a Muslim shop again, but they're right across the street from the church. And we go over there, and they have a copy of every one of our tracts. One of them came over to me after we regrouped after that terrorist attack and he said, would you please allow your people to come back over here and do business with us and would you please come over here and do business? And I said, give the folks a little time. No doubt it will happen and by the way, it happened. And they're back. They're witnessing to them. They're showing them the grace and the mercy of God because one day, I want to tell you, Satan is going to hit the entire world. You talk about a terrorist. He's a murderer. That's what the Lord Jesus said about him. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's the one who committed that act. And we had to remind the people that it was Satan, not the Muslims, who attacked their people. But when I look at this church in Acts was united 
They were being persecuted for their faith. Many of them were losing their jobs. They had no means of income. They had no way to pay their bills. They needed food and clothing, housing, just like you and I did. And yet they were united. People went and they sold things. And they put that money in the coffers. Can you believe this? Of the church. And they let the apostles and then later the deacons do the distribution of those goods. You talk about a united church. Others of them were forced from their homes. They had no place to live, just like many of the Pakistanis in Sri Lanka after that terrorist attack, simply because they were Pakistanis and some of the Muslim Imrams from Pakistan had been coming over teaching Islam to Muslims in Sri Lanka. Many of the people in Sri Lanka thought that they were part of the organization that helped carry out the attack. And so they came to some of the members of the Urdu Bible Baptist Church and they began attacking their homes. They began to beat them up. The police had to come and break it up and many of them were moved into police camps and then into military camps just for their own safety, but the conditions were horrendous. They needed help. They needed help with extra food and some medical supplies and some clothing. They were sleeping outside just under a shanty of some kind. And the mosquitoes were bad and they simply needed a basic fan just to blow on them in the evening to keep the bugs and the mosquitoes off of them. Don't you know the same thing happened here? This church in Acts was a united church, but they were going under severe persecution. Thank God for people who give to faith promise missions. Guess what we were able to do with your support? We were able to buy a few fans. We were able to give some medical help. We were able to give some food. Your faith promise missions helped that. That was so necessary, so comforting to those people. It was just like the first century church they came together in a united way and said we're all in this together we're blood-bought believers we're different ethnic groups but we're one and the same people in this church rallied together sold their possessions and gave to meet the needs of other people wow acts chapter 2 verse 46 says they were in one accord that one accord is not a Honda. That one accord means that they were in total unity. They had the blessedness when they sold something. They didn't say, now you pay me back when things turn around. Now I gave to you, I rubbed your back, and when I need my back rub, you rub it back. No, they gave their faith promise. They sold everything they had, and they didn't expect anything in return. They just gave it. That's what made them a united church. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says that they are of one heart and of one soul. I've noticed that in churches that give. I've noticed that at Heritage Baptist Church, a giving, a sacrificial giving church. A church like that has a big heart. A church like that has a big soul. How God blesses that. They held their faith in common. They stood with one another and not against each other. Oh, that's a criteria tonight. If you have aught in your heart against another member of this church, you need to take care of it tonight. 
because the Holy Spirit of God is quenched. It matters not what your situation is. If you're harboring something and arrows wrinkling in your breast against somebody, I want to tell you it's preventing a Holy Ghost sent revival. It's keeping souls from being saved. We often blame the Buddhism and the Hinduism in Sri Lanka and the Islam and all of the nominal religions when our guests come in and they hear the gospel and we know that there's spiritual warfare, that they bring oppression in with them with all of their beliefs, but I want to tell you I don't feel half the oppression with them that I do with Christians who come in and won't talk to another brother or sister in Christ. That's where we need a revival. That's where God wants to work. Praise the Lord, this first century church, which is the model for this 21st century church here and around the world, was the United Church. But secondly, I see in verse number 46, this church was a surrendered church. They were so surrendered to their worship of the Lord Jesus. Oh boy, here it comes. Fanatical preacher. A radical. And I can only say I pray so. I can only say I hope so. Listen to this radical statement. The Bible says in verse 46, they continued daily. That means they came together every day to worship and to honor the Lord. Get that in your heart tonight. Get that in your mind tonight. They didn't just go to church on Sunday. They just weren't Sunday morning Christians. They went to church every single day. You want to talk about surrender. You talk about surrender of people. You talk about a surrender of your time. You talk about a surrender of your person. Can you imagine your pastor standing up and saying, we're going to start church seven days every week? Oh, my. That indeed would have to be Holy Spirit-led. Amen. We can't get half our membership back on Sunday night. Then prayer time on Wednesday night. Oh, my goodness. We wonder why we're not having revival. Can I just tell you a secret? It has nothing to do with Satan. It has everything to do with apathetic, cold Christians. It has everything to do with people who don't have a unity spirit in the things of the Lord and in the house of the Lord. It has everything to do with people who are not surrendered to his cause and to his ways. These people met seven days a week. They were surrendered in the face of persecution and hatred. Remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death. In Acts chapter 4, verse 5, John and Peter were arrested and beaten for preaching. The whole church operated under the threat of persecution, jail, and death, and they were in church seven days a week under those circumstances, and we had a measly terrorist attack on April 21st. We can't get 30% of our membership back. Because they don't trust the bus transport anymore. They think that somebody's going to put a backpack under a seat and blow that bus up. Can't get them back. They live in terror and fear. Some of them have quit their jobs in Colombo. Some of them came an hour, hour and a half, two hours in the government transport system just to come to church. But after the terrorist attack, said, can't come. Not going to come anymore. 
Some of you are sitting in there and saying, well, I understand that. Can I tell you something? I don't. I don't understand it. I don't understand how a blood-bought believer would cave in to fear and how they could say, I don't need the house of God anymore. I can't come on Sunday. You know where it actually started? It didn't start on the terrorist attack. It started when parents started allowing their little Susie-type girls and their boys to take tutorship, private tutorship on the Lord's Day. Oh, it's just Sunday afternoon, it's not going to hurt anything, but all of a sudden they were missing on Sunday night. It began to affect the spiritual atmosphere of the church. I want to tell you, you can't keep a church in unity, you can't keep a church surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God when people are doing their own thing their own way and making all kinds of excuses. We know this is the 21st century, but to God tonight, He would take us back to the first century church, put something down in our soul. See, I can't miss church. The third I see, this church in Acts was a powerful church. This early church enjoyed the power of God in their midst. My goodness, they saw people saved on a daily basis. They witnessed miraculous conversions. First one was 3,000. The second one was 5,000. All saved by grace and brought into their number. They saw God deal with a hypocrisy in their midst by judging guilty members like Ananias and Sapphira. They witnessed many miracles and manifestations of the power of God. And though they were hated by the world, they had the power of God on their ministry. The other day somebody told me to be a missionary, you had to be a french fry short of a happy meal. But your elevator could never go to the top. Sometimes in the morning I wake up stupid. Because sometimes I wake up in the morning when I meet with the Lord and I open the Word of God, I actually believe that 5,000 souls could be saved on one day in Sri Lanka. Had a Bible college student last week tell me, said, Brother Unruh, I used to think that you are a crazy man. And I said to him, my brother, to go to Sri Lanka, you had to be half crazy. You had to be crazy enough to believe that the Holy Spirit of God would do exactly what he said he would do. You had to be crazy enough to believe that every word in the Bible is God-inspired, that you could go to that land. Oh, I want to tell you tonight, we need a Holy Ghost shaking here of people who can believe that in this whole area of San Leandro and about that 5,000 souls could be saved. We need that kind of belief. need that kind of faith. Church in Acts was a powerful church. And I wake up and I go to bed and I think about it. It hurts. And I fall on my face. I said, oh God, I'm powerless. This field is given over to idolatry. 
And I feel locked into the city, feel locked into that pastorate of those two churches. I feel I can't go out and just stand on a mountainside and do what God's called me to do. He never called me to be a businessman. Never called me into law enforcement to be a lawyer, a doctor. He called me to preach the gospel. And I want to tell you, there's some things that I want for my birthday, if you don't mind me just getting a little personal. I want to see 5,000 souls saved when I get back. I want to see a Holy Ghost revival break out. I want to hear from your pastor that something happened here and an earthquake took place spiritually and people got right with God and came down to the altar. Young people surrendered to the Lord without reservation. And the Holy Ghost said, send Barnabas and send Saul. Oh, that's the kind of revival. And if that's a french fry short of a Happy Meal, enjoy your french fries. There was so much spiritual power on this church that the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 6 that these turned the world upside down. In my Bible, I have written in the margin, Dear Lord Jesus, I want to join these, this, these group. It's my heart tonight. I want to be a member of the these group that turned the world upside down want to see a Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Catholic country bomb blasted and bombarded not by backpack bombs that killed the body, but by Holy Ghost preachers. I've asked God for a hundred national pastors. Pray for that, would you? hundred national pastors who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God that whole country could be evangelized every generation. I firmly believe that we could see that 5,000. It's a powerful church. And I feel powerless after that terrorist attack on April 21st. And I know where it came from. The early church in Acts was a militant church. They carried the gospel to everyone they met. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter and John shared the gospel with the crippled man when he was healed and saved. A crowd gathered and Peter and John preached the gospel to that crowd. <laughs> and that's when 5,000 were saved. They sent out missionaries to carry the gospel to the world. Many of our Christian brothers in India believed that the disciple Thomas made it over there. There's evidence of that. The Lord Jesus told them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There's evidence in Kedala State in Tamil Nadu, all the way up to Hyderabad, some semblance of it in New Delhi, that the apostle Thomas actually made it there. His people were a militant church well, I tell you, I'm sick and tired of these Oscar Mayer Wiener preachers today. I'm so sick and tired of it till I can't stand it. They put mustard and ketchup and pickle relish on their hot dogs, and they think they're hot dogs. But I want to tell you, we don't need hot dogs in our churches today. 
We don't need to remove the pulpit and the piano and everything else and just stand up here and have a purple light shining on the speaker and just let him walk around a little bit and dance around a little bit and give them a 15-minute devotion after their one-hour rock concert. The Holy Spirit of God will never work in that operation. 5,000 people will never be saved in that operation. We need a Holy Ghost sent revival that we might be a militant church. I know that's one of those terms you don't use today, but big deal. We're going to use it. It's in the Word of God. We're to be militant. We're an army. We're soldiers of the cross. Apostle Paul told Timothy to train faithful men. My son who just got married called today. His new little wife is beside his side when he called and said happy birthday. They're in Belfast, Ireland. Went to a church, a Baptist church this morning. His mama raised him right, amen. Told me a little of the conversation he had with that pastor. Basically, it was a conversation that many Baptist pastors have, preachers. They talked about food. It's okay. There is a time and a place for that. There will be time and place for that in just a few minutes. But I want to tell you something. Can I tell you what else I want for my birthday? Do you mind? I want God to take that six foot two boy. And I want him to get all over him. And I want that boy to wake up sometimes at night and listen to the voice of the Lord where the word of God is burning down in his soul. That he understands that he has been called for a purpose and that life is not a playground. I want the Lord Jesus Christ to touch him. I don't want a Corvette. I want a son who's a flaming, fiery evangelist, a soul winner, a preacher of the gospel. Oh, God, give me that for my birthday. That's what every parent here tonight should cry out for. Trying to get your children to become millionaires so that you can retire on their income. Get it off your heart's mind if that's the way you're thinking. If you got a million dollars, give it to your church. They literally fulfilled Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This militant church, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. They had the gospel. They had the gospel, and they did not hesitate to use it. Number five, this church in Acts was a feared church. While they were hated by the world, they were also feared by the world. When Ananias and Sapphira were killed for lying to God, fear fell upon the people because of the power of God that rested on his church. And I want to tell you that's something that's missing in Sri Lanka. They don't have a fear. I'll never forget, after we finally got a resident visa, I took a project in there just like the religious cultural minister who was a Buddhist man in his 70s, 
His niece was the president of Sri Lanka at that time. Controller of immigration said, you know, all of these years, we put all of these temporary visas in your passport, but the line's been drawn. We're not going to put any more. And if you want us to put any more in your passport, you're going to have to go to the cultural religious minister and get a paper from him. And so we did. We finally got a meeting with him. And never forget the day going to his office. There were Buddhist monks in there. There were Catholic priests in there. It was a religious cultural office. And they came in there to do business with their government official. So I sat there and sat there and sat there. And I watched all of these people, Muslim Imrams. I saw Hindu priests. I was there all by myself. I had a stack of papers this deep. And it proved our income. They were audits of what we did in Sri Lanka and how we lived in their country. Because I knew that that would be a question. How do you survive here? And I was a little concerned about it because on those pages were names of churches. Finally, when we had that meeting, he took that pile of papers, he listened to the appeal to give a visa, and he said, look, this is a Buddhist country. And if you're not going to come under the National Council of Churches, he said, I'm going to have to investigate you. And so he did. He investigated my family and I. They followed us in jeeps. We know they tapped into our phones. We know that when some of our mail came, it came in a plastic bag, and there was even the word censor in there at times. We know that they got into our home, and they went back to a little office that I had in the backside of our home in that village, and it was ransacked. They didn't steal anything. They were looking for more paperwork. Finally, after a few weeks of that, he called Naranjan, our good friend, who was helping us in the planning of churches at that time. And he said, I'd like to meet you. But he said, do not come to my office. He said, I want you to come to my house. When he said that, I knew something was going down. And we went to his house and he said, look, we've investigated you. And here's the first thing he said. He said, I want to thank you for what your wife and your children have done for the community that you lived in. You brought in children on Saturdays and they taught them English. They taught them Bible stories. They taught them ethics and character. And he said, I just want to tell you thanks. He said, as a Buddhist government minister, he said, I'm all for that. And I thank you for that. He said, second of all, I have to tell you that I cannot grant you a visa. He said, if we granted you a visa, we would have our second civil war in the country. And I thought, my goodness, that's quite a statement. And then he explained it because he had two letters, one from the Archbishop of Colombo and another one from the Baptist Union, both members of the National Council of Churches. And they wrote letters against us, telling about all of the conversions and telling how things have been upset. I guess that means it was just a little militant. And he said, I can't grant it to you. He said, but I can tell you this. He said, why don't you go back to your country and try to organize something, a project that I can approve of. 
come under a different government ministry. Don't try to get a religious visa. And he said, if you do, I'll be glad to sign those papers. And at that time, the price for that was $50,000. I want you to listen tonight. Because this is about faith promise. $50,000 to a missionary, they just as well make it $50 million. When you don't have it, you don't have it. You say, well, that's really a, a sum that could be considered. Well, some of you can do that today. Some of, maybe some of you new missionaries can think that way today. But I want to tell you, in the middle of the 1990s, we could not think that way. Never wanted to go to a church and ask for a dime. And now we're going to be put out. He said, I have to put you out of the country. But he said, by the way, it's for your own safety. There's death threats against your family. And you need to move out of the area that you're now living in. He said, you need to go back to the States. And he said, now listen, when you go back, I want you to tell the people that sponsor you something. I want you to tell them that we Buddhists in Sri Lanka did not kick you out. Your fellow Christians did. These letters that I got did. I don't know if that shocks you or not. Can I tell you something? Though we've had a few skirmishes, a few close calls with the other religions, I want to tell you, it's those who call themselves Christians. It's those who are concerned about 5,000 being saved that have been our greatest issue and our greatest concern and the biggest thorn in our side. Because they knew giving out tracts and going door to door, bringing people in from the fields of sin was a militant approach to starting a church. We came back to the States. We asked God for $50,000. I knew I had to do some reporting, so I did, and then went to one church in Florida, Pastor Fong. The pastor of that church, who's now in heaven, but he was on our approval committee of pastors who make sure that you have the character, the ethics, that your credit report is right, and that you have no police reports on you, that everything is what it's supposed to be, that you serve the Lord well before they send you out and allow you to go on deputation. I wish that would happen again today, by the way. A lot of the new missionaries today, I'm not talking about my brothers here, but a lot of the new missionaries today get that totally bypassed, and that's why there's such a great fallout. That's why there's such a high resignation rate. That pastor who finally said, Yes, I believe this is of God. The other pastors joined in that. Well, we went to visit him several years later just to give a report, to preach in the church. And that morning after the message was given, just mentioned what it would take just a little bit to stay in Sri Lanka, why we had come back home. Right after the message, the pastor came to me and said, come with me real quick. We went right to the doors. 
where people were walking out and shaking hands, and all of a sudden there was a man back in the crowd, and he was waving a piece of paper, and he said to the pastor, Pastor, hold that missionary, hold that missionary. So finally he got to us, and he said, uh, Pastor, where are you taking the missionary right now? And he said, well, I'm taking him to my home. We're going to have some fellowship and a meal. And he said, would you please keep him past dessert? Just hold on to him. I had a meeting that night to go to from Leesburg to Orlando. And so that's exactly what he did. And finally, this man showed back up. And here's what he said. He said, I took the cassette recording of the message. I received one, and I went home, and I listened to it. And I called a colleague of mine, and he said, long story short, he said, Pastor, here's a check made out to your church for $18,000. The pastor that night called me a few days later because I wasn't in that evening service. When his church heard about that, they said, let's have a faith promise offering they wrote out a check just shy of $22,000. Almost half of that 50000 was there, and I didn't have to stand up and say, would you please give me 50000 Because you asked the Lord for those kinds of things. Went to another church some weeks later. It was on a Saturday, and they asked me to come to their, their Saturday morning a buffet of all of the missions committee, the deacons and the pastor, and said, give us a devotion, and I did. They said, now we want to ask you some questions. And they began to ask about the field and why we were home and what the need was, and so I told them in a very basic way. We had our breakfast. When it was done, the pastor had the chairman of the deacon board come up and he presented me with a check for $18,000. Long story short, that 50000 came in just like that. Not because of who I was, nothing that I said. It's not about the missionary. It's not about his family. It's not about their gifts. It's not about their talents. The Lord wants his church to be militant. He wanted a missionary in Sri Lanka. He wanted souls to be saved. He wanted us to go to the gates of hell at the Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim temples and preach the gospel. That's what he wanted. And whatever God calls for, he pays for. The church at Acts was feared. Can I ask young people tonight? Where are the young people tonight? 13 to 19 years of age. Would you raise your hand? 13 to 19. There we go. I had a taste of that fear one time, young people. When I was 16 years of age, I was rebelling against my parents and against authority. We were in church every time the doors were open. Plus, plus. I came to my father one Wednesday afternoon after school, and I said to my dad, I was shaking. I said to him, Dad, I'm not going to church tonight. He said, is that right? 
I said, yes, sir, I'm not going to church tonight. He said, where are you going? I said, Dad, I'm going to go to the school prom tonight. Never been to one. I have no idea what it's like. But my friends have asked me to come, and Dad, I'm going to go to the school prom tonight. You know what my dad did after dinner? We always ate early on Wednesday night. We lived on a farm. By the way, he was a big guy. You know what he did? He told my mom, said, put the children in the car, I'll come later with Terry. And they went down that gravel road and I just swallowed real big because I thought I was gonna get my clock clean back to the Garden of Eden. And he said, now do you wanna tell me again what you said earlier? And I said, Dad, I'm not going to go to church tonight. I'm going to go to the school prom. And Dad, nothing can stop me. And you can't stop me. Please do not try to do it. You know what that old fundamental Baptist deacon did? Not old in age, but just old in the fundamentals of the faith. He went over to the couch and he kneeled down and he started to pray. And I stood there feeling like a total idiot that I had just mouthed off to my father, basically telling him that I'm not surrendered to his authority as a father. In my life, I'm going to do what I want to do. And a real long story short, can I tell you what happened? God got a hold of my heart. Because when you see a father, not a mother, but when you see a father get down on his knees and you hear him pray, oh God, don't let him make it out the door safely. When he gets in his car and drives down that gravel, Lord, don't allow him to make it to that school. When you hear him pray that, I want to tell you, I believed it. The fear of God struck my soul. It's called revival. Before that revival came, there had to be some repentance. I prayed with my dad. Again, a very long story short. I looked at my clock. He looked at his and figured it's too late. Take the 20-mile trip and go to town and go to church that night. I said, what do you want me to do? You want me to go out and tend to the horses? He said, no, son. Go get changed. We're going to go to church. I said, well, Dad, it's going to be over before we get there. He said, son, go get changed. We're going to go to church. So I got in the car with him after I got changed, and we went to church. We got there in time. Those days, those preachers were so long-winded. I got there in time to take the whole sermon in. I got it all. There was my mom with my seven siblings sitting on that long pew, and my dad and I sat behind there, and everybody's eyes kind of went like this. I wonder what that was all about. I'll tell you what it's all about. Got a Holy Ghost whipping. Had a daddy who knew how to get on his face and pray. 
Say, I gave you to the Lord many years ago. You don't get to do what you want to do. You're the property of God. That'll send a church into revival. This church in Acts was feared because of things like that. People around them knew that something was different in that church. I didn't show up for that prom. I asked Dad Thursday morning, Dad, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to have to face my friends. He said, you're going to go to school. Aren't you tired of these fundamentalist parents? And I went to school. Unruh, where were you at last night? You said you were coming. Do or die. Where were you last night? We were waiting for you. We had a spot cleared off on the dance floor for you. I never danced a day in my life. Only time I danced was when there was a hot belt on the backside. I wouldn't have known what to do on a dance floor to save my entire life. I said, what happened? Did your old man get a hold of you? I never called my father, even in a state of rebellion, an old man. Never called him my own man, old man. Young people, if you're up to that, if you're living that kind of life, and you think that life is all about you and you don't need to obey dad and mom, I want to tell you when you disobey them, you're disobeying God and you're keeping revival from coming to your church. You're keeping people from surrendering and going to the fields that are wide and the harvest where the labors are few. Need some young people tonight who come down to an old-fashioned altar. Say, God, cleanse me so that you can use me. Many people feared this church because God's presence was that real. I can remember God's presence being real that day. Unless there's the element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. 50,000 came in, we went back. Had a resident visa in our passport. Had to go down to that guy who said to go to the cultural religious minister. By the way, he signed it, the cultural religious minister. Did exactly what he said. Can you imagine that, a Buddhist government minister? Signed it, knowing full well who we were. He stated it right on our application. We brought in a project where you teach character qualities and leadership skills. All comes out of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Because I didn't want to be caught up selling ice cream. I'm not a businessman. Needed something that would give a platform that would preach. Something that would allow us to meet other people and win souls. And guess what happened? That immigration officer was forced to put that resident visa in that passport. He was angry. He was mad. He said, I told you not to come back. He picked up the phone and he called the archbishop's office. He said, this man is back. You know what the archbishop did? He got his secretary, who was a retired detective. In Sri Lanka, you retire from the police force anywhere between 55 and 58 years of age. And he told him, 
that secretary picked up the phone and called his buddies in the Intelligence Bureau, in the Criminal Investigative Department, and told them that I slyly got a visa back to the country, but that I was really a CIA operative under suspicion for that. I don't even know how to use a magnifying glass. <laughs> Said, he's here looking for human rights abuses maybe for the U.S. Embassy. I thought I'd been abused all my life. <laughs> Before I knew it, we were in court. Seven lawyers and I had to hire one. The only one I could find was a Methodist. My grandpa called him Methodist. But I am here now in court with the Methodist, the State Attorney General of Sri Lanka. Immigration has three lawyers. They stacked the court. It was a holiday. It was in April. They went right to the appeals court, right under the Supreme Court, to bring my case. My, what a day that was. We walked in, and there are two justices sitting there, and there are those seven lawyers standing up there giving their case that I'm really a preacher, a pastor, and one of the judges said, what's that? They did not know what a pastor was. He said he's bringing his religion to the country, and this project's just a cover. So finally he took our lawyer, and our lawyer had done his homework, and he had a book about this thick, and he got it from the U.S. Embassy, and he brought it, and he said, yeah, your honors, he said, Sri Lanka and the United States have made a free trade agreement with each other. And any American who has brought a project into our country has the same religious rights as a Sri Lankan citizen. They said, let us see that. And so they looked at it and studied it. They looked at the other seven lawyers. They laid down the gavel and said, whatever this man so long as he fulfills his purpose of the project. Whatever he does in his private time is his business. The case is canceled. All that to say that there were churches that were praying on their face, had a wife and children and home that were on their face. That's called a faith promise prayer conference that God moved in and he told the government, I want him there. Not because it was me, because it's about him, and it's about his gospel, and it's about his word. I want to tell you that kind of fear no longer resides in many churches in the world. Our commitment to church many times is conditioned on schedules, routines, and convenience. And so is our faith promise giving. And today, these modern 21st century churches are powerless. Lost people come into churches and there's no conviction. And I want to tell you, this is one missionary who is sick and tired of it. When people come into church, I want them under the power, the powering conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. 
That's something that a preacher can't drum up. That's something that God the Holy Spirit must do. God the Holy Spirit must speak to your hearts tonight, dear young people and children. You're not too young and you're not too old to come down to an old-fashioned altar and say, Oh God, give us 5,000 souls, I surrender my life. I needed this tonight. Maybe you didn't, but I did. Therefore, the Lord changed the message. Because I know this, if we're going to impact our generation for the Lord Jesus Christ, we're only going to do it through the power of His Holy Spirit. Electric bass guitar and a drum set and a bunch of guys dancing around on the platform like a bunch of half-naked bumblebees just isn't going to bring it in, folks. We need a revival. Go back to Sri Lanka. I want you to pray for these crazy missionaries. Sorry to bring you guys in on this. But I want you to pray for these crazy missionaries that when they go to the field and when they hit that soil, that God the Holy Spirit would come all over them. Say, I can do it again. 5,000 souls. But I have to warn you. In closing. When he does it, we're going to need some help. We're going to need some laborers. We're going to need some God-called servants of God to come over and help us. If God called you, would you go? Would you go? What are you up to? That's called a faith promise surrender. 